Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 4th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Shout out to one of our sponsors, Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit. Good for your health, good for the planet. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Visit purplecarrot.com and be sure to use code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. This episode is also sponsored by Children's International. Children's International is working to end child poverty around the world by giving kids access to a safe place, a team, and a path out of poverty by focusing on health, education, empowerment, and employment. Together with people like you, we're more than a nonprofit. We're a powerful force for change. Learn more at children.org. This week's episode is also sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 off towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. This week, I'm joined by Stephanie Lepp. She's the host of the podcast Reckonings, which explores how people change their hearts and minds. She's an artist and a strategist, and you can learn more about her at infinitelunchbox.com. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Stephanie Lepp. Thank you, Andre. So infinitelunchbox.com. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, when I was when I was little, I had a lunchbox that had Bert and Ernie on it. And on the lunchbox, Bert was carrying a lunchbox with Bert and Ernie on it. And on that lunchbox, Bert was carrying a lunchbox. And I just wondered to myself, you know, how far do the lunchboxes go? Am I in a lunchbox too? So that was, you know, Stephanie at six years old, just kind of grokking the concept of infinity. And that has just stayed with me ever since. So tell us a little bit about your podcast, Reckonings. Yeah, so Reckonings is an exploration of how people fundamentally change their hearts and minds. And uh, the, the, the net that is cast is pretty wide. So it's really anything from uh, members of Congress who have made some kind of major shift in their political views, whether on gun control or abortion or other issues, 
to uh, violent extremists who've managed to overcome violence and hatred, uh, all the way to uh, parents who have struggled to accept their sons and daughters as transgender and have had some kind of transformation around that. So it's really a, a diverse cast of characters, but, uh, but the through line is really an exploration of the question, you know, how do people change? And how do people change in ways that that connect with or, or, or kind of scale into broader social and political change. And so I should explain to our listeners why today's episode is a different format than usual. I met Stephanie and I heard about her podcast and it seemed really relevant in a moment where it seems like the political landscape is shifting to some extent. And certainly people seem to be changing their minds in terms of seeing uh, Republicans for the first time, you know, saying that they're going to vote for the Democratic Party uh, and vice versa. So given the current political climate, we thought it would be interesting to turn to sociology, which is, after all, the discipline whose goal is to understand society, to help us figure out exactly what is going on. And of course, this is the eve of the election. So for this episode, the format is slightly different. We're going to start with an interview with Arlie Hochschild. She's a sociologist and emeritus professor from Berkeley. And her new book, Strangers in Their Own Land, is a report of the five years she spent embedded in Louisiana trying to understand the factors that are behind the Tea Party movement in the U.S. And in fact, Stephanie, it was you who turned me on to this book. Yeah, yeah. I'm grateful that we got to put all of this together. Yeah, she's great. (laughs) Then we'll turn to two individual stories in the style of Reckoning. So tell us a little bit about who we're going to hear from in those interviews. Yeah, so we're going to hear from two voters who made some kind of transformation during this election season. I don't actually want to give away the transformations that they made, but I will say that it's one young voter who is voting in his second presidential election, and then one longtime voter and political insider who has been voting for over 40 years. And... uh, You know, so Inquiring Minds, you know, does interviews with experts, Reckonings does more storytelling. And uh, we just thought it would be really compelling to kind of put the interview with an expert with Arlie Hochschild together with these stories in order to kind of create a like a holistic look at political worldview transformation during the 2016 presidential election. I just want to be really clear that my goal with the stories or the goal with the stories, the storytelling is really not to kind of pick apart these people's views and make sure that they're bulletproof, whatever that means to me, but to really understand why and how they made the transformations they made, which again is, which is something our, you know, quote unquote, sociologist of emotion, Arlie Hochschild is kind of perfectly positioned to complement and help us do. Especially since a lot of Arlie's work depends on interviews and depends on looking at individual experiences. Right, exactly. So we thought that this would be a sort of nice way for people to experience some sociology in action. Right. So after the two interviews uh, from Reckonings, we'll hear from Arlie again with a short reaction to the changes. And then we will see you on the other side. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Arlie Hoshield. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress for a shockingly fair price. This is a one of a kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink 
and just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is $500 and a king is only $950. So to get $50 towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. Are you looking for that perfect holiday gift? Well, Blurb can help. Because the ultimate gift is one that keeps on giving, of course. Blurb's free bookmaking platform allows you to create customized, professional quality photo books for loved ones from your computer, iPhone, and iPad. Make thoughtful, unique, and one-of-a-kind gifts that won't be forgotten. And it's National Write a Novel Month, so maybe you want to create a graphic novel or a picture book novel just in time for November. But you can also create family photo books, travel books, cookbooks, Instagram books of friends' photos, and so much more. You can turn your mouth-watering family favorites into a recipe book just in time for the holidays. You can relive this year's epic vacation in a photo book featuring all your memorable moments. You can print one copy or many. There are even free layout tools and experts available to help every step of the way. I was an early adopter of Blurb. I used it almost 10 years ago now to create my wedding photo album, and it saved me a ton of money. It allowed me to add all kinds of personal touches, and I very much cherish that book. So want to create a custom gift this holiday? Go to blurb.com minds and enter code minds for 25% off unique holiday gifts. That's blurb.com minds and code minds at checkout for 25% off. Blurb. Make a book. Leave your mark. Shout out to one of our sponsors, Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit. Delivering delicious recipes and pre-proportioned ingredients to your door each week, you'll discover new flavors and learn new techniques as you explore the world of plant-based cooking. Eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. There are over 20,000 edible plants in the world, and most of us will only get to experience a small fraction of these. That's where Purple Carrot comes in, creating new dishes every week inspired by seasonal flavors that will tempt and delight. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Find out what they're serving up this week by visiting purplecarrot.com and be sure to use the code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. That's purplecarrot.com and code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Arlie Hochschild. Hi there. Pleased to be here. So today we're doing a show about how this election might be or might not be different from elections previously. And it certainly feels different for those of us who are seeing people who seem to be changing their mind, having stuck to one party for a number of decades. And it seems to be happening on both sides, uh, in a sense. And for a long time on this show, we've talked about how difficult it is for people to change their political views and, and beliefs because of the confirmation bias. We look for evidence that confirms our beliefs rather than disconfirms them. So we wanted to talk to an expert and find out whether there does seem to be something different about this particular election. And whether or not there's something we can learn about how our political beliefs are ingrained or change. So um, five years ago, I set out 
to uh, uh, leave my um, more democratic liberal enclave here in Berkeley, California, to go to an equal and opposite enclave uh, that is as far right as Berkeley is left, in order to try and uh, really come to understand political belief. And I felt from the beginning that uh, whatever one's belief, it's very related to deep feelings that are uh, rooted in experience. So I thought the only way as a sociologist to get to understand how people feel about their candidate was to get to really know people well and to hang out with them, to take my own political alarm system off, and to try and climb what I've called an empathy wall, so that I uh, would ask people where they were born and go to the birthplace and look at the schools they went to, the churches they attended, the graveyards their parents were uh, buried in, and really try and see how life made sense from their point of view. They are not people who have changed their political affiliation, but for whom it's become increasingly important. And while always uh, Republicans, and uh, uh, they, uh, many of them have been enamored of Donald Trump. And uh, so my uh, journey of five years didn't become, be, begin with Donald Trump, but at the very end of it, he came on the scene, and I felt as if I had come to understand the kindling and then had met the match that lit it. So how do you, as a sociologist, but also as someone who has her own political leanings and opinions and beliefs, how do you maintain an objectivity or you know, ensure that you aren't biased in a way by your own beliefs and, and or is that possible? It's not hard, not that hard to do, actually. I went to uh, southwest Louisiana, for example, to uh, study mainly older, mainly white, many religious um, tea party enthusiasts. And uh, uh, there were 40 that were very strong believers, and 60 in all that I interviewed over the five years, uh, accumulating over uh, 4,000 pages of transcript, and uh, really getting to know people and um, even making friends, uh, it, which is uh, was a very interesting experience. And I'll give you an example of how this suspending your own feelings Works. I met a woman uh, at the Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana's monthly luncheon, uh, and she was sitting across the table. She was uh, a gospel singer in a Pentecostal church, and she said, oh, I love Rush Limbaugh, the conservative radio host. And I thought to myself, after a second of gulping, I'd really love to talk to you about that. I... I uh, could we meet for sweet teas? Uh, yes. And the next day we did. And she told me that she uh, loved Rush Limbaugh. She followed the Rush doctrine, as she put it, um, because he uh, had it in for uh, feminazis. Okay. Well, 
as a long-term feminist, I'm hearing this, and then uh, environmental whack wackos. So I'm an environmentalist. And, and yet, you know, I was there to listen. Actually, after a while, she said, is it hard for you to hear what I'm saying? And I told her, actually, no, not at all. It's, uh, I'm not here to convince you. I'm here to learn something I don't understand about and that's puzzling to me. And you're doing me a great favor of explaining it and sharing with me your experience. And she said, you know, I can do the same thing. I can turn my own alarm system off. And then we had that in common. And then it came out. She said, actually, I love Rush Limbaugh because he's defending me, I believe. He is my brave heart, she called him, against the epithets that liberals uh, toss at people like me who live in the South. Uh, I know people think that we're backward and um, uh, miseducated or uneducated and that we're racist and we're homophobic and we're sexist and maybe fat. <laughs> she, she said, so uh, I feel he's protecting me from that. Well, I learned a ton just by turning my alarm system off, sharing that with her. And, and there was a certain closeness, although we are on absolutely the opposite ends of belief, political belief spectrum, but there was some space created to detach from what you believe to see where the human connection could, could be. That then becomes the basis for further conversations. So let's talk a little bit about your methodology and why you feel that that approach gets at some kinds of answers that aren't uh, available using other approaches? The kind of research I've done, sociologists describe as exploratory and hypothesis generating. So the goal of it isn't to see how common or rare something is, or where you find it or don't, or to study how something comes and goes through time. I draw on research of others that do address such questions. But my goal has been to discover what that something actually is. And I've, I've long been fascinated by the emotional draw of right-wing politics. That's my something. And it took getting close to people to, and that's what's determined my choice of a method. So it's something I've, a method I've used in really all my previous work as well. So um, I used a number of methods. My first was to conduct four focus groups, two of uh, liberals, two of um, conservative Tea Party, then to interview everybody in the two conservative focus groups, then to go to... Um, meetings of the Republican women of Southwest Louisiana and get to know people, interview um, women, then their husbands, their children, grandparents, neighbors. It's called snowballing. Another th method I used was to follow a Republican and Tea Party uh, candidates for a uh, congressional seat 
and then that took me to Miss Rice parades and um, uh, boat launches and uh, union meets and meet and greets. Uh, and um, then I would sit next to people and I'd say, hi, I'm from a California uh, Democratic state. I'm here. I'm just curious what's going on here. Could you Could you tell me? And I always told people who I was, what my job had been um, at the university, and uh, why I was there. And people were very open. I would say, well, look, I'm really disturbed about this increasing divide between uh, two sides of society, and uh, I think we don't know each other. And uh, they would say, yes, I'm worried about that divide, too. So let's get right into what you found. Uh, What did you discover? Well, uh, first of all, the people I was talking to were white, older, uh, Christian. And the main thing I discovered is that that they were worried, that they were feeling invisible. And to the extent that they were invisible, they felt disparaged by much of the rest of the culture, and certainly the so-called quite liberal elite. And the red state paradox that I came to them to try and understand they didn't think was a big deal. What was that paradox? It was, how could it be that in the United States, it's the poorest states, the states uh, with the worst education and health care, the lowest life expectancy, the most pollution, and states that received more federal money in grants than they gave in tax dollars were also the states that uh, disparaged the federal government, wanted it reduced. I mean, I couldn't understand if you've got problems, wouldn't you want some help solving them? And Louisiana, which is a super South, which is why I went, was a super example of the red state paradox. On the one hand, Louisiana is was in 2014 the poorest state in the union, and 44% of its state budget was uh, came from the federal government, and it was overwhelmingly Tea Party and now Trump. So again, uh, how come if you've got these problems, and they did, have one of the worst education systems, one of the worst health records, one of the highest rates of cancer, it's a petrochemical uh, state, and did receive all this money, how come they, they didn't want... Um, the federal government. How well, How come the federal government wasn't their friend? That became my question. They knew about that paradox. So discovery one, oh, they knew what was thought and why that was puzzling to others, but it didn't matter as much as something else. But let me just interject too, because I feel like there's another side of that paradox, which is the religious beliefs side, where, you know, uh, the foundation of Christian beliefs, in my opinion, is that we help one another. And that is exactly, you know, the opposite direction that a lot of the Tea Party candidates are going, where it's each each person for him or herself. Did that factor in, too? They don't. Um, that's another finding. It's uh, they don't live day to day in an each person for himself kind of way. I know if we page through the books of Ayn Rand, we would think that it was each person for himself ideal that they 
espoused, but that's not true. They were, um, I'll give you an example. I interviewed an accountant, and on her desk were the tax returns of the cleaning lady, were the tax returns of a neighbor, uh, you know, an elderly person needed a little help. And then I followed her to church, and we were taking plastic cups from um, her, uh, the trunk of her um, SUV to um, because there was a fundraiser for our boys in Afghanistan, um, <clears throat> forgotten, they felt, by uh, liberals. And so they did a lot of outreach and neighborly help. In fact, they believed in that. They thought that the government was, in a way, undermining the kind of neighborly help that people owed each other. So uh, what they, they were not selfish at all. They just didn't want the, the, they believed in generosity, but they didn't believe in the government as the instrument of that generosity. So Given that then there's this shift, I guess, in in our view of uh, of of people in particular in this this part of the country, what do you think explains the, or what did you find that explains the either the the fact that they feel marginalized, or I mean, is is that is that really the answer? Is that they feel as if they've been left behind or somehow um, set aside by you know the Democrat? Democratic Party, or liberals in general, or people on the coasts, or which, you know, these are all things that are Venn diagrams with a lot of overlap. Um, or, you know, or is it is it something else? No, you're very close here. I think three things uh, come together in their mind. Uh, and they are that they feel invisible. They, they don't think that the rest of American culture, and certainly not the democratic or liberal part of it, uh, knows who they are. Secondly, to the extent that such people know who they are, they feel disparaged. One man said, well, look, you, you can't say the N-word, and I certainly uh, uh, don't want to, and... Uh, erase anyone from my Facebook page that does use that word. I, uh, I'm not a racist, but uh, a lot of people freely use the R word, redneck. And he felt put down, and he had a life of great struggle, actually. It's been a tough life. He feels like he's worked hard and followed the rules. So they feel um, invisible, disparaged, and life has gone downhill for them in the last 20 years. As as we know, the earning power of a man, not even just white men, but man has gone, uh, is less uh, today than it was in uh, 1973. And that goes for this group too, especially for blue-collar uh, men in the South. So uh, they feel that nobody is listening or seeing or sympathizing with um, this downward mobility that they're in the middle of, and they're sinking and nobody's looking, and they feel that the Democratic Party is not their party, and that the it has 
grabbed the instruments of the federal government to help other kinds of people, but not them. It's helped blacks on affirmative action programs that have made jobs formally reserved for whites now to be available to blacks. Women, even bigger, um, are now have access to jobs formally reserved for men. And they see immigrants, they see refugees, they see even the endangered brown pelican, the Louisiana state bird, they see as ahead of them. They said, oh, these liberals, they think animals are more important than people. So all of these people, they feel, are kind of cutting in line for and pushing them back as they're trying to wait for the American dream that is ever more remote. It's like they have this caricature of like a rural hillbilly and they think, oh, well, they're dumb, they don't read. And even if they do, it doesn't matter. They're not important. They don't vote. Actually, one of my coworkers said something along the lines of, uh, you know, it was such convictions that, you know, Trump supporters are, are without exception the worst people I've ever met that, you know, they're almost subhuman. And I'm standing there just being like, you know, we're actually friends, but I think I'll keep my mouth shut. Alex Mamet grew up in a poor and diverse suburb of Chicago, which has been struggling from decades of deindustrialization. His parents divorced when he was six, and he was raised by his single mom who worked at Walmart. Alex and I spoke back in March during the primary. Let's kick things off in the diverse neighborhood where Alex grew up. It was just so common to interact with people that didn't look like you, that didn't speak the same language or eat the same food. It was just, these are your fellow community members just also fighting to get by. We might look different or talk differently, but we're all in this together. But after the 2008 financial crisis, things changed. That sense of solidarity Alex shared with his neighbors waned, and things started to feel more competitive. The middle-class schools in his district slashed a bunch of their programs, like English as a Second Language and Special Ed. And because of the way policy was structured, lower-class schools, like Alex's, had to grow their programs with no additional budget. It felt like instead of us all striving to lift ourselves up, it felt like we were being pitted against each other to fight over what was left. Which was in some ways true. This pitting of underserved groups against each other followed Alex into college. It started with an oddly cheery email, just being like, hello, your, your financial aid is being removed. Have a nice day. And it was just baffling at first. I, I thought it was just a spam or something. And as this dragged on, it turned out that it was basically an issue because at that point in my life, I was uh, estranged from my father and had been for several years. And... Um, Part of that seemed to be that they couldn't believe that that would be the case for someone who was white. <sighs> Finally, it just came out that it was kind of like, you know, we, we have limited resources and one more white face. What is that doing for us? This really is not helping our diversity initiatives. It's not 
it, it doesn't do anything for us. The fact that you're poor in itself is, is great, but it just isn't enough. I was at work, actually. Somebody was like, oh my God, can you believe that outrageous speech Donald Trump gave? And then when I went and actually listened to what he was saying, I was like, he can point at specific trade deals and say, we've been giving away too much. We've been making these deals that are good for the richest of us and bad for everyone else. Or, and then when we try to clean up the mess afterwards, we only focus on certain minority groups and ignore the poor white electorate. Hearing him talk about that in a way that I hadn't heard politicians speak about it before and to recognize that it didn't benefit everyone equally was just to me felt like finally somebody cares. Ignore his wild rhetoric. He's just signaling strength. He's signaling determination to take on the powers that be. And I think that's why people are so confused by him is because they constantly say, well, what policies is he bringing to the table? And I think that kind of misses the point a little bit in that, it, at least for me and the Trump supporters I've spoken with, it's not like one specific policy. I mean, he loves to talk about the wall and a lot of his supporters do support the wall. But I don't think anybody's heart would be broken if he didn't actually build a wall and became president. Mostly it's reducing the need to feel fearful over labor competition. And that's something that you have been fearful about? It kind of echoes some of the feelings I had when I was going through college and high school, feeling like I had to compete with different racial or ethnic groups for the same pool of resources when it shouldn't have to work that way. Make America Great Again. It harkens back to the economic golden age. I think of the 1950s, the stereotype of a home, a car or two, family being able to support their kids. And what's even crazier is being able to do that on a single income. Obviously, that was not the golden age for all Americans, particularly for Americans of color and women. But we are also having to work much harder to maintain the same standard, it feels like, than we used to. Even with two people working, it can be hard to make ends meet. And we're the same people we've always been, but why is it so hard? Can you talk a little bit about how it felt to support Trump? I'm imagining it felt good to feel like someone for the first time in a long time is really speaking to your constituency. It, yeah, it was it was absolutely cathartic. It was amazing to have somebody that felt like they were the personification of your anger with the, with the established political system and with people who had been insisting that either you didn't exist or didn't deserve to be paid attention to. The most fun part about it was the more water they tried to dump on the fire, it turned out to be oil and he just got more supporters and it, it was like he's unstoppable. One of my friends, you know, is a Sanders supporter and they had brought up the election and I said, I think I'm going to support Trump. And the immediate, well, it was like a couple seconds of a blank stare and then, and then the, the response was, um, was I, I, I didn't know you were a racist. Oh. <laughs> and I was just, I thought it was a joke at first. And I was just like, you know, I tried to laugh it off, but it was, it took a minute for me to realize like they seriously thought I, I was like a white supremacist or something. And it was just like, no, no I, I, I didn't even know where to begin, you know, to, to try to explain myself. Just saying that, you know, it's not, 
it's not about knocking everyone down so that white people are on top. It's that certain poor white communities felt like they haven't been heard and he's trying to speak for them. And then I think the way she she put it was she said, maybe maybe they don't deserve to be heard. And I remember I, I had said, you know, um, I, that's actually been one of my big concerns is feeling like people don't want to hear what we have to say. And, and it was really hard for, for us with the with the rally being canceled on Friday because, you know, we were so excited to, to see somebody finally who was speaking to our values. And it felt like people were trying to shut us up again. And and she said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they shut down the rally. She said, well, we don't need that here. It's just hard for me not to stereotype other people then as just intolerant or bigoted in their own way, even though they obviously do care about, you know, minority communities. It does seem somewhat selective. The National Review is seen in a lot of ways as a mouthpiece for the conservative establishment. And uh, Kevin Williamson recently wrote a piece called Father Fuhrer that talked about how white underclass communities deserve to die because they're degenerate. And when, you know, when you're being told that not only are your problems not real, but if they are real, they're your fault and you, you deserve to die, it makes some of Trump's uh, own rhetoric seem almost tame in comparison. Did that make you more entrenched in your support? Oh, absolutely. Trump? Yeah. It, it just makes you want to shout twice as loud when somebody's saying, you know, that they that they can hear you. First, they say they can't hear you. And then they say they can hear you, but they don't care. It just makes you angrier and makes you want to dig your heels in. When I was at the University of Chicago, it was such a, a bubble of just white people, you know, rich white people. After I graduated, overwhelmingly, my workplace was white. I guess I closed myself off to the point where the last time I'd really interacted with the community was back when I was still living in the community where I grew up. I became very detached, just isolated. So then Trump comes along and, and is actually speaking to what I identify with white lower class interests. I recently was lucky enough to be able to buy a home and the community I ended up living in. It is so much like the community where I grew up. It's so diverse. Even if you're renting in a more diverse community, it's it's not quite the same until you permanently live there and then are interacting with your neighbors. You, you have a homeowners association. I was just hearing from people I was close to, you know, whether they were gay or black or Hispanic or you know, an immigrant or had, had knew someone who was undocumented and was worried and just realizing that all these people have so much to lose. And it felt so reminiscent of growing up. We all knew we were all worried about something and tried to help each other out. It was waking up to realize in some ways how selfish my viewpoint was. Ah, I don't remember which debate this was. One of the Republican debates and Kasich was talking about the need for country unity. Something about the specific way he said it. I don't even remember the words. I just remember the feeling of just being so, so overpowering. It kind of sparked that nostalgic feeling, what it used to feel like before 2008, that we're all in this together. I want to feel that way again. I remember going into the polling place and they asked which ballot I wanted to vote on. And I picked the Republican ballot, but I got in there and, and kind of had a crisis of conscience, which is bizarre because I, I've always had pretty firm belief about who I was going to vote for and why before I walked into the polling place. 
I sat down, looked at the ballot, and I was like, I've been following this election so closely. How is it that I don't know who I'm going to vote for? It was at that moment that it became so clear. Yes, I really want to vote for Trump because it's my turn now. It's our turn now. But at the same point, that's not who I want to be, and that's not the way I want to see our country. It just realizing how isolated I was from everyone else's experiences allowed me that delusion to think that, no, it's my turn. It felt like the right thing to do was to pick someone who could represent more than just one constituency's interests. Trump is a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. What I really want is to feel like we're all working together. And then as I started feeling that I needed to be more connected to other people's interests, not just my own, Kasich was the first thing that came to mind. I voted for Kasich. And that's where I started that move towards, okay, if I'm compromising on saying, let's not represent just my interests, why not find a candidate that represents as many as possible? That's where I started looking at the other side a little bit more. With Clinton, it was it was hard. I, there was there was a couple major hurdles for me, given how much the media has said about her negatively. The more I went into it, the more I saw, you know what, I'm actually okay with this, to the point where I could look at her and say, I reasonably believe that she has fought for her constituencies in the past and will continue to do so in the future. There's a lot of room in the Democratic Party and a lot of room behind Clinton for people who are not may not be the most politically active or even the most politically desirable as supporters, but they have a chance to get their voice heard now. You have said that although you're firmly committed to voting for Clinton in the general election, Trump's message still has a strong emotional appeal to you and that you're still in a kind of mourning from leaving his campaign. What does that mean? The emotional appeal is feeling like you're having your voice heard, even as I have slowly climbed a couple notches up the economic ladder. I still feel like those values are very deeply embedded in who I am. And it just, yeah, it, it feels a little bit like betrayal. You, you feel like you're betraying your constituents? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm a lot luckier than a lot of the people I grew up with. And uh, it, it feels like leaving a like-minded community and knowing that those issues may or may not ever be brought up on the national stage again. What has been most helpful for you, both in finding a candidate you feel good supporting and in developing your political worldview? I think it's just been people who are willing to talk to me and to listen and give me the opportunity to listen to them in an open way about why they feel like they do about their candidates. I feel like so many people, they've got slogans or they can list off facts, but they're not willing to really open their heart and tell you why they why they feel like this is the right person. Like this specific issue is important to me because of this. And this candidate has done these things in the past that have actually helped. And that's why I want them to keep doing those things. The new paradigm that I'm trying to live by is to not begin and end at what's good for me, but think about everyone I know and try to think about people I don't know and try to make sure my decisions account for those people because I, 
I know what it's like to, to be part of a group that people don't care about or, or don't know exists. My hope is that people can realize the fallacy of thinking that just because Trump will likely be defeated, it doesn't mean that his supporters just disappear into the ether and the problems don't exist. These supporters are there for the taking if a candidate is just willing to look at some of the economic troubles that they're facing. Some policies like the financial assistance program, SNAP in particular, is, is wonderful and really helps people of all races, ethnicities lift themselves up. I guess my overall hope is that people can understand that if you're willing to listen to somebody who you're pretty sure doesn't have a good reason for what they believe, but if you're willing to listen anyway, you might find something worthwhile. For our second story, we have someone who entered the 2016 election season with a much longer standing and more entrenched political worldview. Lifelong Republican insider and lobbyist, Bob Schneider. Bob's family has been in the Republican Party since the party began in 1854. His parents taught him that the GOP is the party to be a member of because it's the party that wants to grow the economy. Like Alex, Bob also grew up in a suburb of Chicago. We grew up behind Governor George Ryan. And I would take my bike and I would go over to his house and I would pick up campaign literature and I would drive it around the first precinct of Kankakee, Illinois and deliver it to homes. And I've walked probably a thousand miles knocking on doors for various Republican candidates over the past, you know, 50 years. That knocking on doors evolved into a career as a high-flying Republican lobbyist focused on trade, defense, and diplomacy. Bob started out in the 80s at Hill & Knowlton, at the time the biggest lobbying firm in the world. During his early days there, he had one particularly memorable meeting. I went in with Frank Mankiewicz, and Frank Mankiewicz had been Bobby Kennedy's press secretary, if you recall, and he was the guy that announced to the world that Bobby Kennedy had been killed. So we got up to the Trump Tower, and we did our pitch. And Donald came through the door, and he said, um, I'm building a classy airline. I'm, I, you know, he said, I'm, I'm putting in uh, uh, gold-plated uh, toilets in the, in the 727s. And I thought, huh. So I looked at Frank Mankiewicz, and he says, hey, weren't you that Kennedy guy's press secretary? And he said, yeah. And he says, Yeah, I think I saw a picture of you holding his head as he bled to death. For the record, those were actually gold-colored bathroom fixtures. And we reached out to the Trump campaign to ask about the Mankiewicz story, but they didn't respond. Over the years, Bob started seeing discrepancies between his political views and those of the GOP. He'd always been more moderate on social issues like abortion, But now he was starting to differ on issues more central to his lobbying work for the party, like defense. For instance, he thought Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 and opposed the Iraq war. More recently, he was talking to some Republican officials in Illinois, and they mentioned the term rhino. I said, rhino? What are you talking about? They said, you know, rhino, a Republican in name only. 
And I said, well, what's the litmus test for being a Republican? Because, you know, I'd only been working in the party for, you know, 25 years. <laughs> and they said, well, they have to be pro-life. That's number one. And I thought, oh, boy, I just flunked that one. And um, uh, they have to be pro-police. Okay. Yeah, and, and um, uh, you have to be against the global warming fraud. You know, they they said uh, a Republican has right standing with God. And I said, well, do Jews have right standing with God? And they said, well, Republican Jews do. I said, oh. I said, how about Democratic Jews? No, they, they don't have right standing with God. And I said, so you're telling me God is is a Republican? <laughs> and they said, they said, how can you read the Bible and not believe that? And it was in this context that along came 2016 Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Trump was an anathema to the Republican views Bob held dear, particularly around free trade. He was getting a little concerned during the primary back in March, so he made a call to one of his Republican buddies in Washington. And I said, Rick, I said, what the hell is going on with this Trump guy? And he said, you know, he said, Bob, he said, we think he's going to win. I said, you think he's going to do what? And uh, I, I said, you realize he'll he'll take the party down with him. And he said, and Rick, who has been a Republican, you know, as long as I have been a Republican, said, is that such a bad thing, given the state of the Republican Party today? And I said, you know, maybe not. Given his family's legacy in American politics, the 4th of July has always been a meaningful holiday for Bob. He's always viewed himself as an American first and Republican second, and takes Independence Day as an opportunity to reflect on our country. This past 4th of July was particularly meaningful. I had planned on being outside and working in the garden, and it ended up being a a day of reflection, a day of sitting and reading old material from the 80s that I had written and looking at the transition of the 90s and reading what was going on with the party today. I think Obamacare is one of the big, glaring examples. They talk about how it's killing the country, so on and so forth, and there are some bad things about Obamacare that need to be fixed. But what about the people who didn't have medical care that now have medical care? What about the people who had lost their medical care because of a pre-existing condition who now their pre-existing condition cannot be used against them? You know, they don't look at the human side of what these policies are about. It's that kind of lack of empathy for human beings that's missing in the Republican Party. You know, the Republican plan for health care is let the poor die. That's the Republican plan for health care. Well, I knew I couldn't support Donald Trump. I knew I could not support Donald Trump. 
And a lot of my Republican friends who are name Republicans, big name Republicans, were jumping off the ship. And they were saying they can't support Trump. And I thought, well, you know, you're still supporting the hypocrisy that brought Trump along. And that was the angst for me. Do I just not support Trump and stay with the party? Or do I leave the party altogether? And I finally came down on the side of it's the party. Trump is not the cause of the Republican Party falling apart. The Republican Party falling apart is the reason they have Donald Trump. Trump is the symptom of the problem in the party. I decided to write the uh, article and post it on the blog, and I wanted to let the party know you've lost another one, and here's why. And I got the uh, article ready to go to publish, and I thought, you know, I better read this one more time. And I thought, do I really want to publish this? And I paused for a moment, and I took a deep breath, and I hit publish. And it said, you know, article posted, view the article. And I uh, took a look at the article, and I thought, boy, I've really done it now. And I took it, and I put it on Twitter, and I put it on Facebook. And I sat back, and in about 10 minutes, the hits started rolling in. You know, there was a lot of rancor thrown my way. Uh, it was a pretty busy day on the cell phone. And I thought... Republican friends would call up and say, Bob, you've been a Republican a long time. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, let's talk about this. And instead, they called me up and they said, you know, who the hell do you think you are? You know, how could you publish something like this? And, and it, it, was, it was chastisement. Well, you know, there's an arrogance within the GOP. You know, we're almost practicing politics as a tribal function. And if you offend the tribe, you aren't supposed to be talked to to find out what your objections are. You know, you have to be wiped out. Parties use ideology. They use emotion. They use whatever trick they can to get you to turn your brain off and to pull the party nominee lever without thinking. They want it to be almost rote for you to walk in and to, regardless of what the person is like, regardless of their character, pull the lever for the Republican or pull the lever for the Democrat. I became an independent because it allows me to concentrate on policy instead of partisan politics. One of the problems with partisan politics is you become so obsessed with party you forget about policy, and you leave policy to what's the party's position on it. I really look now for the hate and who's spewing the hate, and I move away from them, whether that's right or left. That is entirely different than it was before I decided to abandon the party. I prefer to think of myself as a guy who woke up from a bad dream and put the human factor back into my political thought. And I rediscovered my empathy 
and my ability to think on my own. And that's my political ideology. And with this renewed ideology, in late October, Bob voted early in the 2016 general election. I went to the county clerk's office and I was expecting, you know, maybe I was going to have to, you know, drink a fifth of vodka in the morning to vote. But uh, I went and I got the ballot and there her name was. And, you know, I filled in the dot and, uh, you know, it was easy. Gosh, you know, I, I was having angst over this. You know, why was I having angst? This was easy. And, and I walked out and I felt like I had done something right. Why is it such a big deal that Bob Schneider left the GOP, became an independent, and voted for Hillary Clinton? Because my life was the GOP. My identity was wrapped up in the GOP. My career was wrapped up with the GOP. So basically, everything Bob Schneider was, from when my hair was still dark to now, when it's gray, was wrapped up in the Republican Party. And is there some kind of sense of, you know, if you could leave the GOP, then... Anybody could. I, and, yeah. you, you know, I, I tell my story on the blog because I want others that are wrestling with the question to see, hey, you're not alone. I did this, I took the step, and I feel good about it. You also mentioned you know Republican officials who oppose Trump privately but support him publicly. A lot. A lot of them. There are a large number of senators and congressmen that I know who have publicly endorsed Trump. And when you talk to them on the phone, they say, oh, my God, I can't wait till this guy loses. and Alex from our previous story come from very different political and economic directions. And yet, during the 2016 election season, through all the vile and insanity, they both made the same transformation in political worldview. From focusing on the self-interest of their constituency or party, to broadening into what they see as the collective interest of our country. That is a, a big shift for me is because of this individualism is one of the foundations of the Republican Party. And to vote for Clinton, you have to think about us more than just me. And when I think about us, it actually helps me. Your political worldview will change until the day you draw your last breath. <laughs> Hopefully. If it doesn't, you should wonder what's going on with you. Exactly. Always test it. Always. That makes two worthwhile invitations. One from Alex to listen to people with different points of view. And another from Bob to always test our own worldviews. And with that, back to Indre's conversation with Arlie Hochschild. So we've just heard from two individuals who, you know, of course, single anecdotes are not data. <laughs> um, but 
Um, but, you know, we, we've heard two stories uh, from individuals. One, Alex, who very much echoes uh, what you found, that he felt like he didn't have any representation. He didn't have a party. He felt like he was being put down. And, you know, ultimately, though, he decided that he couldn't vote for Trump for a variety of reasons. And then there's Bob Schneider, who was a lifetime Republican who worked into the party, in the party, and then just over time just felt like his own beliefs were no longer in line with the direction in which the party was heading. So do you think that even in this last month, as some of these character traits of Donald Trump have come up uh, to the surface, um, is that enough for people who originally you know, in the South, perhaps, especially in the area in which you were, um, felt like he could be their uh, voice. But, you know, is is that enough? Or or is there, you know, do you feel as if the um, the way that they feel just is, is not going to be, uh, it's not going to change? The people I came to know in Southwest Louisiana were uh, ambivalent initially, about Trump. Uh, One woman said, well, I saw him imitating a disabled uh, reporter. I think that's terrible. What kind of morals are being displayed here? No, I'm not going to vote at all. Another um, uh, woman said, well, with the groping thing, uh, no, that's appalling. And uh, so, but many actually just flicked these objections. These are real objections that they had. They really were ambivalent, thought, oh my heavens, who do we have here? But at the same time, that feeling conflicted with the feeling nobody else is listening to us. Hillary Clinton won't do it. And Barney Sanders, they felt a certain affinity with. Oh, Uncle Bernie, they would say, well, pie in the sky, you know, he's a socialist, and he thinks there should be free education for everyone, but from whose taxes will that come? They, um, they were, uh, had a friendly feeling toward him, uh, although they couldn't go all the way with him. So they felt um, politically stranded and morally ambivalent, And then there's this latter-day whipping up of sentiment that has happened. And some people have gotten whipped up into it, into uh, uh, Trump is a charismatic figure, and uh, he's playing on these emotions. There's a back and forth between you and me. I am your messenger. Uh, Come with me and uh, you will rise. It will be as in a secular rapture. Uh, So some are whipped up into that. It's not that they're not rational people, but this feels like an emotional moment that they feel deeply spoken to, as you would if you were in love with someone, you know, that they spoke to your deepest story. Uh, So some have gone in in this direction, and some are confused and uh, to the side. So if Trump wins this election, I don't know, what any and how anyone can predict the future in that scenario. I think I think that's that's very clear. We we don't know what that future will look like. If Hillary Clinton 
wins the election, there seems to be more of a, a couple of clear things, one of which will be that this division in the nation is not going to be healed, right? She, you know, there, there's still going to be a lot of in, in mar- people who feel marginalized, especially as you were describing in this area of the South. So what do we as a nation need to do in order to help these people feel as if their voices are heard um, and also to sort of move past this divide and, you know, really create a better life for everyone as opposed to just, you know, half or 40 percent of the population? Well, I think uh, there needs there could be a um, multi pronged uh approach to a problem of this division. So um, on one level, uh, I think the uh, one or the other party, but certainly the Democratic Party, needs to look at uh, what kinds of jobs, steady jobs and well-paid jobs could be made available to the blue-collar class in the United States. What is the impact of these trade agreements? Uh, What is the impact of the importation of uh, foreign labor uh, to do lower-paid work in the U.S.? I think, so the first attack would be at, at the policy level and to have um, uh, one or the other party really address those issues. In other words, Donald Trump has actually um, tried to take on, he's, his claims are grandiose, but to also to, to try and reverse some trends that are, that are in motion. For example, in Louisiana, a lot of the petrochemical plants around Lake Charles are highly automated, and they're now uh, expanding because of the availability of uh, cheap natural gas brought by fracking. So they're expanding. But what's happening? Is it offering blue-collar Louisianans new jobs? Actually, no, because the new jobs coming in are either MIT-trained chemists, you know, from outside Louisiana, way uh, uh, trained at a level that uh, the people in need of jobs are not. And there are uh, Filipino pipe fitters being imported in. So they're feeling squeezed out. And uh, so how could that, what policies would put jobs in front of these, um, these people? And some of the companies uh, were uh, setting up, well, actually it was the county government and the state that was paying for some training of pipe fitters. But you needed, even if you got your degree, you needed, in order to get a job, experience. And the companies were not offering them that experience. So I think, you know, policymakers need to get down on the ground at that level and see what the experience of an apprentice pipe fitter really is. Can he get that job? Or or, or is there some glitch that's been overlooked uh, by policymakers? Then I think 
uh, given the steam and the whipped up feeling really on both sides in this political moment, we need some mechanisms. I think through the churches, there could be reach out through schools, there could be reach out through unions, to some extent there could be reach out across this political divide. There's an organization uh, called Living Room Conversations, which has a Tea Party on one side and a progressive on the other, and they sit down. You have a group of 20, maybe, uh, that break bread together, and uh, I think more of this uh, could happen. And then I would just like to see people um, get out of their enclaves and go fishing and have a beer with some people that you'll discover are really fine human beings, but who've grown up in a different a different truth. And in fact, there's there's lots of wonderful evidence that that kind of uh, empathy-creating environment where you spend time with a person in an out-group, um, someone who's not like you, actually does lead to less bias, even less implicit bias of which we are not fully conscious. Um, so, you know, I think that that's a really great idea. And I, I hope that we can somehow engender some of these um, interventions, uh, no matter what happens on November the 8th. So I'd like to remind our readers that Arlie's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, A Journey into the Heart of Our Political Divide, is available at booksellers everywhere and is a finalist for the 2016 National Book Award. Congratulations on that. And thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. One thing I really appreciate is her big idea, this idea of a deep story. That uh, it's, you know, it's really hard to dialogue with someone about an issue without understanding their deep story, without understanding where they're coming from. And Alex's story is very similar to the voters she talked to in Louisiana. You know, she mentions these three elements of of their big story that I think also capture Alex's attraction to Trump, that they feel invisible, that uh, they feel that people who, and when they're not invisible, they feel kind of disparaged. And then third, that life has really gone downhill for them, um, whereas other marginalized groups have, have gotten some, some help. And so with Alex, that was, you know, he saw the effects of deindustrialization in Chicago, and he really kind of felt that, that his suburb has gone downhill. He had these experiences, you know, for example, with affirmative action, where his school told him basically, like, it's great that you're poor, but you're not a person of color, so you're just not helping us out, you know, and, and they were going to take his his school funding away. Um, Bob also has a deep story. I didn't really include this in the edited piece, but his is really around kind of defending free trade and defending Wall Street and, and defending, you know, another constituency, the constituent that a constituency that he feels like he's a part of, and he feels gets wrongly stigmatized. So I just I yeah, I really appreciate uh, Arlie's idea of this deep story and, and really kind of asking yourself, what is this person's deep story as a way of really understanding where they're coming from and what their views are, and therefore, then being able to kind of be in dialogue with them. Yeah, that was really something that I hadn't considered before, that a lot of people who are voting out of anger uh, are doing so because they feel like their voices aren't being heard and that they are you know, somehow being marginalized. It sounds obvious and stupid <laughs> now in <laughs> retrospect. 
Um, but, you know, it, it never occurred to me that there could be a group of, you know, Caucasian individuals in America who felt like they were being stigmatized. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that to me just doesn't, you know, it doesn't compute. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I can see where they're coming from. And also this, you know, this this idea that, as, as Arlie said, that there's this kind of doubling down, uh, even in the face of sort of contradictory um, things, you know, we're, we're, we're questioning the morals and, and that, that this doubling down is, is happening because these feelings of not being heard are so strong. Right, right. And that and that to me also connects with political messaging strategy. You know, the, the, she, she was saying, you know, people that she interviewed were initially repulsed by Trump. But like you just said, you know, that conflicted with this feeling of no one is listening to us. Uh, and, and which dovetails with Alex's comment that he feels like Trump supporters are really up for the taking if only they felt listened to. It can really be that simple. And yet it doesn't look like the Clinton campaign has really kind of taken this on. On the contrary, you know, you hear this comment about a basket of deplorables. But I really do hope that that her administration does or that this is taken to heart. Like, it, you know, it make people feel listened to. And that is a way to engage them and possibly win them over. That, of course, is assuming that she wins the election. Oh, uh, yeah. Which on the eve <laughs> should not sounds... make that assumption. Wow. Yeah. I can't even believe I didn't even. <laughs> Clearly, I'm just. Yeah. Well, th- well, th- th- I should probably then say whatever. I, I guess I, then I should just say uh, it doesn't. It Yeah, it doesn't look like the Clinton campaign really did that either campaign. Um, but I but, hope- but that's what's interesting. I, f- I feel like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what amazing. makes me wonder is that, you know, that the Trump campaign is being perceived as speaking to these individuals. And I guess as an outsider, I don't really see how that is true other than, you know, Trump going in and, you know, saying some 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 things. But, I, you know, yeah, just I, I don't know. I guess it, it, it still makes me wonder whether um, even like how how it is that these people begin to believe that um, that that Trump is there is is listening to them, other than the fact that he's not already in government. Right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, he's also not uh, criticizing them, which is new for them. They feel right. That's true. And he's and he is speaking to the issues that they care about, or that many of them care about, which Alex highlighted a lot of it is about fear of labor competition. And so he's talking about immigration. He's talking about... But then, you know, then you have all of his business practices, which don't seem in line with that, you know. (laughs) That our political worldviews don't necessarily come from reason and logic, which is yet another reason to go into the deep story, which, you know, the, the feels as if story. You know, and if you try to kind of pick apart these people's views from a place of reason and logic, it's not, you're not going to understand them. Yeah. And I think that that's what's compelling to me about Arlie's approach. It's very different from the approach I generally take. It's very different from the approach that, you know, this show generally takes. Uh, And I'm sure we will have our critics. Um, (laughs) But I also feel that it's a position and a data set that is worth hearing about um, regardless of whether or not you feel that it's the final word, um, I think that there is something to the fact that it's very difficult um, to sort of get at an understanding of what's happening without doing some at least uh, initial exploratory hypothesis generative right. work, which is really where Arlie fits in. Right. And, and, and even if people's views aren't always based on fact, on facts, it is a fact 
that they feel this way, and therefore, what can we do with that fact? Exactly. Is another way to think about it. Well, yeah. we'll find out in a few days. <laughs> yeah, I love. I can't believe I just completely assumed. That's that's kind of amazing. Um, another another. It's something else that came out to me from the interview that I thought was interesting was this element of self-awareness I that they that the people that she talked to in Louisiana know about the red state paradox know about the you know what's the matter with Kansas problem I really I really did not know that and it just kind of strikes me you know the potential power of self-awareness I really wonder whether her subjects read her book you know and what did they think of her book you know and how could understanding not only other people's deep stories, but really looking in the mirror at our own deep stories, or at least in this case, someone else's characterization of our own deep story, kind of help us overcome this increasing divide in our country. Yeah. And, you know, it somehow speaks to, you know, another kind of a way of looking at her conclusion that it's about feeling marginalized. Because if you understand, if you know of the red state paradox, and you're still, uh, voting in that direction, um, it really does suggest that there's something else at work, and that that those of us who sort of point out the paradox are almost, uh, you know, again, sort of denigrating and and sort of you know adding fuel to the fire, totally. as it were. Yeah, right. It's like, what's the matter with the people who think that there's something the matter with Kansas? <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, there's you know maybe we should ask the people in Kansas. <laughs> exactly. Or in this case, yeah, in the red states. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Ken Murayama, David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own deep story or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Uh, the music in the Reckoning segment featured Chris Peck, Tannhauser, Rob Voigt, Brack Okazu, and David Sestoy. I also would love to thank our guests, Alex Mamick and Bob Schneider, and thanks to Chris Ladd for the connection to Bob Schneider. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. I'm Stephanie Lev. You can tune into Reckonings at Reckonings.show. And I just want to remind our listeners that there is still time. You should go out and vote. Stay in and vote. Go out and vote however you vote. Just go on and vote. See you next week. If you're hearing this ad, you're trying to decide what podcast to listen to next, and I have got the one. This episode is sponsored by Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. It's an audio drama told week after week. It features stories about crime, love, mystery, or conspiracy with actors you know and love. Some are dramas, some are comedies. The latest episode is a thriller called Severed Threads. It's about faith, greed, and revenge. Make sure you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape on iTunes, Stitcher, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is basically like your favorite TV comedy or drama, but using only sound and your imagination. So head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. 
Once again, it's called Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. Subscribe now. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.